Merry Christmas, and welcome to the American Family Radio Special, Out of Egypt, a Christmas program featuring Ray Pritchard. Ray is a frequent co-host of Today's Issues and serves as president of Keep Believing Ministries. And now, Ray Pritchard with Out of Egypt. Merry Christmas, and thank you for joining us for this special broadcast. I want to talk to you today about a forgotten part of the Christmas story. My title is Out of Egypt, and the text is Matthew 2.15. Sometimes you're reading along when suddenly a phrase pops out and you say, whoa, where did that come from? That happened to me as I was reading the biblical illustrator in preparation for this message. I ran across a statement by a man named W.P. Balfern regarding my text which has Matthew quoting Hosea 11.1 regarding the flight to Egypt by Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Now, Bible scholars have long wondered at Matthew's use of the text from Hosea because at first glance, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with Jesus. It's about the children of Israel leaving Egypt and making their way eventually to the Promised Land. Just as God called them out of Egypt Matthew appears to be saying that Jesus was called out of Egypt to return to Israel so that he might provide deliverance from our sins. Perhaps this will make it clearer. Joseph and Mary were in Nazareth when the conception of Jesus took place. They traveled to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Herod the Great ordered all the baby boys under the age of two in Bethlehem to be slaughtered. An angel warned Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt for safety. They left by night and fled to Egypt and stayed there until Herod died. Then they returned to Nazareth where Jesus was raised. All of this fulfilled the word of the Lord spoken by Hosea, Out of Egypt I called my son. And that is found in Matthew 2.15. There are many mysteries about all this. First, we don't know how old Jesus was when they went to Egypt. Second, we don't know where they stayed in Egypt. Third, we don't know how long they stayed in Egypt. And fourth, we don't know how old Jesus was when they returned to Nazareth. All we know is that Herod wanted the baby Jesus dead. He ordered the male babies of Bethlehem put to death. An angel warned Joseph who took Mary and Jesus during the night and fled to Egypt. Sometime later, after Herod died, an angel told them it was safe to return. But when Joseph heard that Herod's son was reigning in his father's place, he took Mary and Jesus and returned, not to Bethlehem, but to Nazareth. Again, all of this fulfilled Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Because we know so little about their sojourn in Egypt, there is much speculation, but not much solid information. I did find a website with a variety of classic paintings of the flight to Egypt, but not much else. So, as I began studying this text, I ran across an intriguing sentence by this man, W.P. Balfern. Quote, Cross-handed providences often bring our greatest mercies. Unquote. And that set me to thinking because I had never seen the phrase cross-handed before and didn't know exactly what it meant. What exactly is a cross-handed providence? And how do they bring us great mercies? And what does that have to do with the flight to Egypt? I wish I could tell you what W.P. Balfour meant, but I can't. 
When Joseph Excel put the biblical illustrator together in the late 1800s, he often included sermon outlines on various texts. That's all he includes in this case. Mr. Balfern evidently wrote a sermon with these four points. Number one, that when God brings forth good, evil is sure to oppose. Number two, God permits wicked and lawless tyrants to be supreme for a time. Number three, that cross-handed providences often bring our greatest mercies. And number four, that while self is always in a hurry to display itself, real greatness is content to wait its time. Point one is easy to see in Herod's murderous attempt to kill Jesus and his unconscionable slaughter of the baby boys of Bethlehem. Whenever God does anything good in this world, the devil puts his demon spirits into overdrive, stirring up men like Herod to do their dastardly deeds. Point two is obvious in that wicked men, like Herod, come to power by God's permission. He allows them to rise to power. He does not stand in their way, and he does not always stop their acts of monstrous evil. For some people, this poses an enormous problem, and I confess that it confounds all the righteous because we can all see that wrongdoers not only prosper, sometimes they prosper in the midst of their bloodthirsty activities. It is a great mystery why God permits evil men to do evil things, hurting others in the process apparently unchecked. I say apparently, not as a throwaway word, but as a profound theological truth. Things are rarely what they seem to be. No one gets away with sin forever. There is a road that seems right to a man, but the road of evil leads only to death. Your sin finds you out in the end. Herod died eventually, and then he faced his Creator. Passing over point three for a moment, I can see what Mr. Balfern must have had in mind in point four. This applies to Jesus only indirectly, in that as an infant, he had no say in where his parents took him. But the larger point applies to all of us very directly. The path of life takes many unexpected zigs and zags, and we all find ourselves fleeing to Egypt for safety from time to time. When the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached on Matthew 2.15, he began his sermon this way. Egypt, he said, occupies a very singular position towards Israel. It was often the shelter for the seed of Abraham. Abraham himself went there when there was a famine in the land of his sojourn. To Egypt, Joseph was taken that he might escape from the death intended for him by his envious brethren and became the foster father of the house of Israel. Spurgeon continues, Into Egypt, as we all right well know, went the whole family of Jacob, and there they sojourned in a strange land. There Moses acquired the learning which was so useful to him. To this point, Spurgeon has simply recited some facts from the Old Testament that we all know and understand. He is pointing out that while God sometimes sends his children to Egypt to protect them, he always delivers them from Egypt later. So Moses and the children of Israel came out of Egypt in the great passage through the Red Sea. We need Egypt for protection, but we are never meant to stay there forever. The living seed may go into strange places, but it can never be destroyed. The host of God may walk through fire, but it shall not be burned. 
True greatness waits its time. It does not rush the Lord or complain when things happen slowly or when the plans of life suddenly are overturned. By faith, we go down to Egypt in the middle of the night, knowing that one day, by faith, we will come out of Egypt. Both the going and the coming are part of God's plan for us. So much for what Mr. Spurgeon had to say. Now that brings me to Mr. Balfour's point three, and I'll repeat it here, that cross-handed providences often bring our greatest mercies. It must mean something like this. The ways of God rarely make sense to us in moments of great crisis. Did Mary wonder about God's plan when she suddenly had to take her baby on a difficult journey across the Sinai Desert to Egypt? Did Joseph and Mary discuss it together? We do not know, but we know that Mary was a deep thinker who pondered things in her heart. I said earlier that I had never heard the phrase cross-handed before. When I googled it, I discovered that it is a common golfing term referring to a certain way of gripping a putter. Though I doubt this is what W.P. Balfour had in mind, the golfing image is helpful because it suggests a situation in life where the normal lines are somehow all crossed up. Nothing is what you expect it to be. Sometimes life can be very cross-handed. The term applies to Herod in many ways. First, he was shocked when the Magi showed up in Jerusalem looking for one born King of the Jews. That was a direct challenge to his authority. Then, he was shocked when the scribes immediately knew that according to Micah 5.2, the baby was to be born in Bethlehem. Then, he tried to cover up his evil intentions by playing nice with the Magi, asking them to let him know when they found the baby so he could come and worship him too. But he got thrown for another cross-handed loop when the angel warned the Magi to return home by another route. Then this sick, evil tyrant hatched a monstrous plot to murder all the baby boys two years old and under in the Bethlehem region. You would be hard-pressed to find something more sinister than this. But in a strange, cross-handed providence of God, an angel warns Joseph to take Mary and the child and flee to Egypt. But there is yet one more twist to this story that we should notice. If you go back to Hosea 11 and examine the context, you discover that God is declaring His love for the people of Israel in spite of their sin. You get both sides of this picture in Hosea 11 verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Like a father who cannot give up on his own children, the Lord continually reaches out to his own people and says, I am bound to you forever with cords of love. Though the Jews turned away from God and said, We prefer idols instead. The Lord disciplined them, but he never utterly cast them away. They paid a heavy price for their disobedience, but God never gave up on them despite their repeated failure. 
When God says, out of Egypt, I called my son in verse one, he is thinking of the nation as a whole. It is because God regarded Israel as his son that the next phrase stings so deeply. The more they were called, the more they went away. The kinder God was, the more they rebelled. The more God showed his love, the more they turned away. The more God answered their prayers, the more they said, we don't need you. Nothing tests our patience or our faith like a loved one who rejects our love. What do you do when your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife says, I don't need you in my life and walks out the door? Your response when rejected tells a lot about your theology. I received an email from a woman whose daughter has rejected her Christian upbringing. The mother said that sometimes she feels so angry that she has a hard time praying for her daughter. Every parent understands her anguish. What do we do then? At this point, we come face to face with the crucial importance of good theology. We need to be reminded that an astonishing miracle lies at the heart of our faith. We believe something absolutely incredible, that God took on the form of a man and came to this earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. We believe God entered the human race. That's incredible. That's the miracle of Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God moved into our neighborhood. If God can do that, who are we to question God's power to change the hardest hearts? After 2,000 years, we are no closer to understanding the Incarnation than we were when it happened. We know what the Bible says, but we can't explain God becoming a man any more than we can explain the creation of the universe out of nothing. That is to say, we know that God did it, but we don't know how God did it. You either believe it or you don't, but your belief doesn't rest on your ability to explain how God could become a man. The Christian faith is filled with miracles. Take the miraculous out of our faith and there is nothing left. In particular, we believe that the earthly life of Christ was marked by two utterly astounding miracles, the incarnation and the resurrection. He entered the world in an utterly unique, never-to-be-repeated manner, and he demonstrated his true identity as the Son of God by defeating death once and for all when he rose from the dead on the third day. I mention this because good theology can save your life when you are heartbroken over a loved one's unbelief. When your children turn away from you, it challenges everything you have been taught to believe. Sometimes, in our anger, we turn away from those who have turned away from us. We say, good riddance. And in our pain, and in our sadness, and in our tears, we put up walls that separate us from our own flesh and blood. Maybe our silence will teach them a lesson, or so we think. That's where the message of Hosea 11 becomes so relevant. God had worked a mighty, stupendous miracle when he delivered his people from Egypt. And how did they express their gratitude to him? By making a golden calf. The more he called out to them, the more they turned away. It's as if the Jews decided, we're gonna see how far we can run away from God. What do you do 
if you were a father and your ungrateful children spit in your face. This is what God did. He loved them anyway. He never gave up on them. He would not let them go. I happened to watch a television show featuring an enormous choir of young people singing Thanksgiving hymns. Near the end of the program, they sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The last verse contains a line that goes like this, Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering hearts to thee. When they came to that line, the camera focused on a beautiful young woman who sang those words with tears streaming down her face. I think I understand a little of what she felt that day. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It is God's kindness that causes us to weep. It is His readiness to forgive that blows us away. That's the kind of God He is. He never gives up on us, even when we give up on Him. That, my friends, is the message of Hosea 11. God is saying, You are my beloved children. You are part of my family. I called you out of Egypt. I gave you every blessing, and still you turned away from me. Your disobedience has caused you to suffer, but I still love you. I will not let you go. You are still my children, even when you disappoint me. Who wouldn't love a God like that? Who wouldn't serve a God like that? When God brought his people out of Egypt, they failed miserably and repeatedly. Yet he loved them anyway. And that's why, 1,500 years later, he brought another son, his one and only son, the virgin-born son from heaven, out of Egypt. That son succeeded where Israel failed. This is God's answer to our failure. This is God's response to our sin. Here is the whole gospel in three simple statements. God said, do this. We said we can't. God said, all right, I'll do it for you. God demanded perfection. We couldn't meet the standard. So God sent his son who was perfect in our place. God demanded payment for sin. We couldn't make the payment. So God sent his son who paid the price in full on our behalf. His holiness demanded a perfect sacrifice. His love sent us his son. In this, we see the glory of the gospel. God says, you must. We say, we can't. God said, I will. And he sent his son from heaven to earth to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That is why the Bible repeatedly declares that salvation is of the Lord. Everything starts with God. Salvation doesn't start on earth and rise to heaven. No, a thousand times no. It starts in heaven and comes down to earth. God takes the initiative. He makes the first move. And that's why the most famous verse in the Bible begins this way. For God so loved the world that he gave. You will never understand why Jesus came until you grasp the meaning of those words. Jesus is God's gift to the human race, entirely undeserved, a gift given in spite of our sin, a gift many would despise and reject. 
a gift that would be brutally crucified, but even his crucifixion was part of the gift from God. In his death, he gave us life. We can expand this thought in many directions. God knew we were dead in our sins, so he sent Christ to give us life. He knew we were his enemies, so he sent Christ to make us his friends. He knew we were orphans, so he sent Christ to bring us into his family. He knew we had no hope, so he sent Christ to give us a home in heaven. He knew we were poor, so he sent Christ to make us rich. He knew we were enslaved, so he sent Christ to set us free. He knew we were afraid to die, so he sent Christ to die and then raised him from the dead. He knew we had nothing, so he gave us all things in Christ. What he demanded from us, he gave to us. What we needed, he provided. That is why God called his son out of Egypt. It is an amazing cross-handed providence of God that brings a river of mercy flowing from earth to heaven. When we ran away, he ran after us. When we wanted nothing to do with him, he chased after us. When we said, get away from me, he said, I love you too much to let you go. That's why that young lady wept as she sang, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. As we think about Christmas, let's marvel at the kindness of God, whose love goes farther than our love would ever go. No wonder we sing. No wonder we celebrate. We all need Him, and we need Him more than we know. This truth is worth repeating. You're in good hands when you are in His hands, for those hands rule the universe. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent a teacher. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent a banker. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent a Savior. And He called Him out of Egypt to be our Savior and our Lord. And this is the surprise, the cross-handed providence of God, the wonder, and ultimately the delight of Christmas. God did what we would never have done, and in so doing, He opened the door to heaven for all of us. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Place your life in His strong hands, and you will never be disappointed. Christ came out of Egypt to be our Redeemer. What a God! What a Christ! Glory to His name forever! May our hearts be filled with joy and wonder and overflowing faith this Christmas season. From all of us at American Family Radio, I wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. You've been listening to the American Family Radio Christmas Special, Out of Egypt, a special Christmas program featuring Ray Pritchard. Ray is president of Keep Believing Ministries and a frequent co-host of today's issues on American Family Radio. To connect with Ray or learn more about Keep Believing Ministries, visit keepbelieving.com. And to listen to this message again, visit the podcast page at AFR.net. Out of Egypt is an American Family Radio special presentation 